take a look at the Bible and to see it, not just as a, as a few collection of sayings or verses here and there, but, but truly as one story from beginning to end that God is telling. And in fact, the, the story that God is telling, the Bible, um, it doesn't just, uh, is bound to Genesis to Revelation, but it's a story that has a way of, have a, a way of living on, uh, living on in us and, and is continually being told through us all the time. So I want to kind of pick up again this, this story called the big picture and, and in a unique way here to, to tell the story, not in a way that just kind of covers the beginning to end, but to drop in on, on a few of those books of the Bible to see how they're not just isolated sayings, but, but the books themselves point towards and fit into that bigger picture. Even more than that, what we'd like to do, I would love for you to walk away from this series, is having this, this, this image about how some of these books, the ones that we get to, not, we're not going to get to all of them, but, but how the, these books that we get to not only fit into the bigger picture, but also how each one tells the Jesus story in its own unique way, in its own unique time, in its own unique place. So, for example, last week, remember, the, the, we had a, a woodcarver kind of at work whittling out, carving out the message of the Bible kind of throughout the entire message. We said that's because of the message of Genesis. is God whittling out, is God carving out a people for himself to give this message of grace to, this Jesus story too, so that not only it'll just end for themselves, but, but so that this message, blessed to be a blessing, will go out and, and to gather up uh, people from the ends of the earth and, and to to tell them about this Jesus story. This is the mission of God as it's told to us, the Jesus story as it's told to us in the book of Genesis. See, what's crazy about this story is that every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, I believe every verse of the Bible points us towards Jesus and tells the Jesus story in its own unique time, in its own unique place, to its own unique people. Uh, today, we continue that story, kind of skipping ahead for a little while. Uh, last week, we heard the story of Genesis and, uh, and Abraham in the story where God said, Abraham, you're my guy. Go pick up what you're doing. Leave your, your extended family. Leave your businesses behind. Leave everybody that you know behind and go. I'm sorry, God, where am I going? The highway exit or maybe the GPS courses? No, no, no. Just go and I'll tell you when you get there. I'll tell you where you're going when you're already on the journey. And Abraham, against all odds, is obedient to that, and, and he goes. Now, he ends up settling in a place called Canaan. And this turns out it's going to be the land. God says, this is the spot. This is the, the property, the tract of land that I'm, that I'm going to give you and your descendants. And they're going to settle here, and they're going to call this place your own. But what Abraham only ever gets to see is he buys like a parcel of that land. It's sort of like buying, you know, one uh, a lot for a home in the entire state of New Jersey. Like that's all he ever gets to realize in his lifetime. But he still holds on to the promise. He still holds on to the promise that this place, the land Canaan as it's known, kind of a collection of modern day Israel, Palestine altogether, this spot is going to belong to his descendants someday. Of course, he only sees a little bit of that before him and his descendants end up moving away from that tract, away from that place during a time of great need of famine into Egypt where they can get something to eat. After a few hundred years of living in Egypt, they become subjected to the Egyptian authorities. They're enslaved, they're abused. After a little bit longer, another hundred years after that, 400 total, God brings them out of Egypt and wander around through their own kind of disobedience. An 11-day journey turns into a 40-year journey wandering around the desert before they're finally 
on the edge of the land. They're the only thing that separates them from their land is a river, the Jordan River. In the book of Joshua, they're right on the cusp and they're ready to go in. And the book of Joshua is all about how they, they cross over that river miraculously and they start taking these first cities miraculously and about how God gives them over this land and that the dream, the promised land, you can see almost God is like obsessed with telling the story. He's like weirdly fixated on it. If you're a first reader of this, it's all about the land. The land was promised to them. They were to settle in the land. They were to clear the land. They were to give the land rest. A good summary of this one, if you're looking for like a, a, maybe a memory passage or maybe just a, a kind of a theme verse of, uh, of the entire book of uh, the book of Joshua is uh, on your flow sheet, Joshua eleven twenty three, also on the screen behind me. A summary that says, uh, hey, this is what happens in the book of Joshua. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. That's the nation of Israel divided up into 12 different tribes. And then the land had rest from war. Now why I think that this verse works so well as a theme verse for the entire book of Joshua is that we have three kind of major movements in this verse, also I think in the book of Joshua. Uh, and movement number one is Joshua taking the entire land. He, he's got to clear this out. He's got to take it. Uh, number two is they're settling in the land according to their tribal divisions. And we're going to see that this process of, of settling in the land isn't quite uh, as easy as, it, as you might think that it is. And there's some back and forth that goes on. And then lastly, the land had rest from war. So there are three major movements that I want to talk about in the book of Joshua, but laying over top of that to say, you know, I think that there's a way that this applies not just a few millennia back then, but I think this applies to us today. I think this has a bearing on your Monday, on your Tuesday, on your Wednesday. I think this makes a difference for us today. And I think it makes a difference in three different categories according to these major movements that, that the battles that they fight correspond to some battles that are still raging, still going on today. I, I think that there's a, a message in here about the Israelites uh, settling into the land and that back and forth, that two steps forward, one step back, that kind of circling around rather than going through the, the easiest route uh, has a message for us today. Call that like maybe where the Israelites derived some of their inspiration or some of their strength from and maybe where they should have derived it from. And then lastly, the, the victory that they had and what it means for us today, particularly the victory that's called rest. So, uh, battles, strength, rest. And off we're running. They, uh, they cross over the Jordan River and they go into this land. And there's a problem. Like We can kind of see this happening immediately when they say they, they takes the entire land. The problem in the book of Joshua is that the land was not just open. There were people living in the land. There were cities in the land. In fact, in the, on the opposite side of the Jordan River, they can kind of look out and they can start to see some of these skylines in the distance. They know that not only are there people in this place, uh, let us not be mistaken on this, because this is, this is one of the more difficult parts of the Bible to, to really wrap our minds in, and I think to wrap our hearts around, is that the people living in this land of Canaan they are not armies. They are not mercenaries. The, the people living in this place, there's not just like military installations in the place and the civilians kind of live elsewhere. What we have to understand is that when, when the Israelites cross over into that Jordan, they're, they're crossing over into somebody else's country. 
They, they cross over into a place where, where people have settled down, have built homes, have planted gardens, are raising their kids. They have a way of life that stretches back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the first kind of comment that I make about this passage is to, is to just be honest with ourselves about what's going on here. That when God says, take the land and clear it out, he means clear it out, not just of armies, of soldiers, of military installations, but he means clear it out of everything. I just want to be honest with you guys. When when I say, in looking back at my faith life, and the times that I've been closest to God or times where, where I've wandered away from God and he's had to tug me back in. You know, questions that I've asked of God and have wrestled with God, questions that I haven't always gotten good answers from. You know, I, just, I have not so much struggled with, with, with questions about bigger things. I, I've not so much struggled about whether or not there is a God out there. I know a lot of people have and I know that's a real struggle, but I just, for me personally, it, it, it never was about just, you know, I struggle with seeing the, the fingerprints of, of a divine being at the center of the, of the universe. L- listen, I just, I, maybe it's just because I, I see kind of this design, these fingerprints all over the place, but that hasn't always been me. Even the miracles in the Bible, like the really weird stuff in the Bible, I just want to be honest, I haven't had a hard time kind of just accepting that as truth. The fact that Jesus was, was born to Mary, this you know, 15 to 18-year-old girl and who was, Jesus was, was, was divine and being human at the same time. It's just, listen, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. A lot of people look at that and they're like, hey, and Jesus, you know, human and fully human, fully God, it, it kind of seems like a, like a square circle or, you know, these things are at odds with each other. I, I never really understood it that way. I never saw that. I kind of like, well, it seems like a blue circle to me. I mean, these things seem totally compatible with each other. I, I, I don't have a problem with that, but I know some people do. I don't have a problem with the fact that Jesus or God made this entire universe, this creation, stepped into it himself, died, and then if all of that happened, I really don't think it's that big of a step to say that he came back to life at the end of it. And that he is, you know, unlike everybody else who maybe had death-to-life stories, near-death experiences, whatever, they, Jesus died, came back, and then he never died again. I don't think that's entirely preposterous, you know, given the, the previous stuff. What I have a hard time with is not only that there is a God at the center of all of this, is that the God that I believe in, so much so that I want to tell you about him, in the book of Joshua, would have his people go into a place where there's not just soldiers, mercenaries, but there's 70-year-olds down to 7-year-olds. Where there are people, presumably innocent people, just going about their lives, settling in, raising their families. And that God, our God, would say, clear this creation of anything that smacks of that culture. Whether it be a person, whether it be an animal, whether it be bricks on top of each other of previous homes. 
do away with all of it. That's the part that I don't like. And I'm guessing that there's a few of you that like, that's the part. When I think about introducing a friend of mine or business acquaintance of mine to, to the, the reason that, uh, for the hope that I have, that's the part that I worry about them asking and saying, you know, let me tell you about the God. It wasn't just all grace and mercy. What about this? So I want to give an, an answer. More, I want to give everything that I've got Kind of in the, in the processing of that, maybe the evolution of thought, maybe some of the answers that I've come to, uh, some of them more satisfying, some of them less. But I'm not sure that I've arrived. And, and so if kind of, I'm going to give you three different ways of just maybe just reconciling, like who is this God at the center of it all? And if at the end of these three ways, you're like, yeah, listen, I... I don't find that entirely compelling. I still have questions. I just want you to know, I have questions too. And in the end, the only thing that I'm banking on is the graciousness of God, that he's at least as gracious as I am, and that there's a resurrection at the end, and Jesus showed us that. But the first one is to, uh, is to look at this command to go in and to like, level everything and don't leave bricks on top of each other, animals, people, everything, all of it, and saying, listen, we're talking about millennia ago. We're talking about a day and age, a time and place when that was normal and that was expected. So it would not be unusual uh, for this sort of command to happen. I mean, there was a reason why in, when Moses sent 12 spies over to kind of check out the area and say, hey, I want to know, you know, like, what's growing there? What's you know, fruits, vegetables? How, how big are the grapes and pomegranates? Uh, he, I want to know not only that, I want to know about, like, fortifications. I want to know about walls. I want to know about armies. Are they big people? Are they little people? Are, are they have, like, swords and bows and arrows? Are we kind of, like, talking, like, sticks? I want to know about groceries. I want to know about armies. There's a reason why when they come back, they're like, good news, bad news situation. Good news is, and they, the way they tell it, you think about these grapes that are the, like the, the size of watermelons, you know, but it could be, they're, you know, they like dusty manna for 40 years, so perspective. Good news, bad news. Listen, it's, you can grow stuff there. There's food there. Bad news is they have walls, we're not talking about just marching in there with some swords or sharp sticks and spears. We're talking about first building ladders to get up the walls. The word that they use to describe the people living there and themselves in relation is we were like grasshoppers walking among giants. Talk about how normal it was. There was a reason why these people trained, why they prepared themselves to fight, why they fashioned weapons, why they built walls around the cities because they knew it was normal in that day and age for other people to come through and to just wipe out anything that might look reminiscent of the previous people who used to inhabit this space. I get that it's normal. I get that it was a barbaric time. What I find entirely unsatisfying and what I think probably you do too is that, is that my hope and the faith that God has given me is, is that there's a God that's outside of all of this. 
that, that there's a God who's, who's infinitely greater, who's eternal, who's not bound by the, the customs and how things are done today, that, that, that God does not have to fit inside my own imagination, that, that there's so much more. And so I don't like that God says or might say, listen, that's normal. We're just operating within the times and within the customs of today. I, could, I find that a very unsatisfactory answer. It may be true, but I hope there's more. And so another one that you could say is, listen, this is not the first time that these people have been brought up in the Bible, that they are actually mentioned quite a few times in and outside the Bible. Sometimes they're called Canaanites, other times they're called like Amorites. One of the first times was in all the way Genesis 15, which is just after uh, the message from last week when he tells uh, Abraham to go to this place. Well, he, he's on his way and he finds out that there's a people living there called the Amorites. And God says, this is the spot. This is the place, all of this land. It's, I'm going to give it to you. And then in Genesis 15, there's this fascinating line. I think one of the key verses to help us understand just how seriously God takes his, these issues of justice. Genesis 15, there's this line. But the sin, it will be all yours, but the sin, the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so it's like God presses pause on the, the Abraham settling in the land story. And not only just does he press pause and say, not right now, but I have to do something with you in the meantime. And so understand that because of the, this wickedness and the sin of the Amorites, because it hasn't quite reached this full measure, you and your descendants are going to Egypt, where at first it's going to be great and you'll have influence there and, and people will listen and, and you can have property, but, but it's going to turn south. And after a few hundred years of this, 400 years later, you're going to be enslaved. You're going to be abused. You're going to have this victimhood mentality pressed on you so thickly that it's going to take your ancestors 40 years in the desert to start to shake it. All because I want to give these people more time. Because it hasn't reached its full measure. Because it's, it's like in Genesis, it, it says that, the, that their hearts were bent towards evil and towards wickedness and towards wrong and towards hurting each other and towards hated God. Their hearts were bent towards this all the time. But, but it's as if their actions haven't caught, yet caught up to their hearts. And God says, listen, before they're the same on the outside as they are on the inside, I want to give it more time. I want to give them, you get the sense, I want to still give them this chance. 400 years later, God says, and he's speaking as much, I think, to the Amorites, to the, the people who've settled into Canaan as, as he is to the Israelites. And he says, time up. I'm going to use something, someone, to clean up what probably should have been cleaned up a long time ago. This could be a flood, this could be an earthquake, could be, I'm going to use an army uh, the Israelite army, to do away with you guys. And in Israel, don't think you're any different. Don't think you're getting special treatment just because of what's happened previously. These rules apply to you. The second, maybe, understanding we have to have about these Amorite people is that they weren't necessarily as innocent as we'd like to believe that they were. 
There was like this dual facet to them that, that made this culture so unbelievably dangerous. It is so unbelievably, so corrupt and, and evil that, that God said, for the sake of my good creation, I can't let this get out. The first one is this propensity to, to exploit the weakest among them. Uh, that young children, uh, even babies, were regularly offered up on the sacrifice, just burned alive and just given over. And the other one was this propensity to, to exploit young girls and call it temple worship. As, as wrong and as wicked as that was, there were plenty of other cultures where that was going on that God did not blot out, did not wipe away with. What made this one so uniquely bad and deserving of the judgment poured out was that this religion was like oddly contagious. It was as to how attractive it was to other people around. That it was, a, it was from maybe the human perspective, people looked at this and they thought, well, this is just great. I can get away with pretty much anything I want. And this is how Canaanite religion went, is, just, is that I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want. I can be and be with whomever I want. And if anything should happen that maybe I would like an extra good harvest to come in at the end of the year, or I would like victory against my, in this battle or against my business adversary, if I want to get just a little bit more favor, all I have to do is offer one of the least vul- or the most vulnerable among the city, among the culture, to one of the gods. All I have to do is go visit this temple where the young girls are working. What made it so deserving of the judgment isn't only that there was terrible and corrupt things happening there, but how quickly it would spread. And so when God tells the Israelites to go in and listen, don't leave one stone on top of another. Level it all. Do away with everything from people on down to the goats. Because that cannot get out. I will not put my good creation at risk of that happening. I, there are elements of that that I still find problematic. I would just hope that there'd be a different way. And the last one is maybe most honest, but at the same time most challenging as well. And that's that God wasn't different in the Old Testament than he is today. God didn't just work through the culture back then and a different culture and time today was that God is, and you could use theological language on that, immutable, unchanging, yes, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is all of these things. And, and there isn't a wedge, there isn't a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all the same story. And each book, even Joshua, tells the Jesus story in its own unique way, in its own unique time, in its own unique place. I'd like to think the opposite, that, that God 
God shows his justice, flexes the, the justice muscle in the Old Testament and the mercy muscle in the New Testament. It's kind of easy sometimes to, to read parts of the red letters in the New Testament and see, this is the God I want to believe in. I mean, we got Jesus hanging out, eating, drinking with tax collectors and sinners. It's like, this guy is great. In the Old Testament, that's where all the nastiness is, and it's a good thing that's behind us. To challenge that, though, that, that God has this dual aspect of, of just and mercy in the same person. We see in the New Testament, Jesus is he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, but then he walks into the temple in the book of Mark, and he sees people selling things, right? Yeah, I'm getting to the, when he overturns the, the tables, right? You kind of know where I'm going with that. But, but seriously, he sees people who've showed up to make a sacrifice, and, and maybe they brought money with them instead of like doves or goats or something like that because it's you know, easier to travel with. And, and, and the price has gone up. And, and so they have got, you have, I know you have to buy this. I know that you have to be a customer of mine. And he sees like the price goes way up to exploit these people. Or or maybe somebody got robbed and they show up and they're like, I don't have anything, but I have to make a sacrifice. He sees people ripping each other off in the temple. And he doesn't just like push over a table and say, hey, that's right. And he walks out. It says in Mark that he took cords and he bound them together. I just see Jesus like off in the corner fashioning a little whip together and he says these people deserve more and he goes out there and he starts whipping people like a raving rabbinical lunatic until they finally decide listen whatever money i'm gonna make today it is not worth it this guy is nuts and so they leave and he knocks everything over right i mean we see this this justice of jesus saying you cannot do this. This does not belong in God's presence, the temple. By the way, where's God's presence today? It's not just church, it's everywhere. That's a secret answer. Um, we see the mercy today, or we see the justice in, in Jesus' time. We see in the Old Testament. And we like to think, you know, this is all like the, all the bad stuff, all the, the justice muscle being flexed. Yeah, until Sarah and Abraham, uh, Abraham uh, sleeps with uh, the, the kind of employee of the house, and uh, Hagar, her name was, she has a, a son, Ishmael. And, and Sarah, like, they, they have to go. <laughs> They have to get out of here. So Hagar and Ishmael go out into the wilderness. They go out into the desert, a very dangerous place, without having packed anything up for the journey. They get out there, and it's quickly apparent after the, the water, the wineskin kind of thing that they put water in before they left, after it dries up, their canteen is empty. And Hagar takes Ishmael, and he puts him under a little, a little tree, a little plant, and it says in Genesis that Hagar walked about a bow's shot away because she didn't want to see her little boy die. This child re- sort of representing everything that would, that would plague Abraham and his descendants. And so everything in the Abraham story would say, let him die, but God has compassion. God looks at, at Hagar 
And she's off away because she just doesn't even want to be around for the sight of it. And he says, Hagar, close your eyes and open them. And when she did, there's this deep well of fresh water. And she immediately goes and gets some for her son, Ishmael, and for herself. And they live. The compassion of God yesterday, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What's so hard about this is that it wasn't like just God randomly chose a people to decimate or to wipe out. He chose a people so filled, so infected with such a contagious sin that the creation would be better off without it than with it. And what's so scary about that is is that God cares. Is that all of the stuff in my life, in your life, that, that we know it doesn't belong with a fully devoted follower of Jesus kind of lifestyle And God doesn't overlook it. That Jesus, when he's sitting with the tax collectors and sinners, he still cares about all the other garbage there. Not, and that doesn't prevent him from coming, that's what keeps him staying there. We talk battles, strength, victory. And this battle that they had to fight and keep fighting, and struggle constantly with. In a way, if I could just speak to your heart now, it's, it's still going, isn't it? It's still alive and well. There's still things in us, giants in us, the fortified walls of our hearts that we sort of keep off and say, and say not here, this far, but don't come beyond that. And what's so terrifying is that God cares. God cares enough to force open those walls of our heart and say, I'm coming in because there's something here that needs to be done away with. Battle strength, victory. What battles are you fighting? What battles are you fighting that you still are, that you're surprised that you're still fighting? Uh, Sources of strength. You know, they came in and they settled the land. Easier said than done, Joshua 11. Because we get to Joshua, um, and it's all throughout, but there's a few verses here that I think say it just uh, pretty well and concisely. Joshua 7, verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, this is the leader of the people, by the way, Joshua. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If we had been, uh, if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. The guy whose name is Victory, that God picked to take this land, already in chapter 7 is saying, listen, everybody, back to the desert. Not worth it, friends. He totally, he's ready to give up. To just quit the mission that he's he's been given. Uh, The next one, same chapter. This is like the second city into this long narrative of a conquest. But a guy, a soldier by the name of Achan replied, after he's been accused of, uh, of, of not uh, getting rid of everything, not burning everything, not pillaging everything, he says, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. Uh, when I saw the plunder, uh, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, kind of like this imported garment, uh, 200 shekels of silver, about five pounds, and a bar of gold. Uh, this is a wedge of about a pound or so, uh, weighing 50 shekels. 
I coveted them, I took them. And they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver under, underneath it. What I find interesting about this story is that he, he like hedges his bets. He says, okay, uh, I'll be obedient. I'm a soldier. I'll go into the city. I'll help with the fighting. But then when push comes to shove, like I'm with you. And I'm kind of with just by myself, out for myself at the same time, right? I'm trying to have my cake, trying to eat it too. Hedging my bets. And the last one is from Joshua uh, 17. Seven, chapter 17 kind of comes to us at the end of the book now, where it says, Yet the Manassites, which was a, a tribe in Israel, uh, were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. No surprise there. Um, however, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, and then key phrase, but did not drive them out completely. We see like this compromising thing happening. Uh, this, this maybe apathy, this, this far is good enough. So uh, three quick stories. We've got Joshua giving up the mission entirely. We've got somebody kind of hedging his bet, have my cake and eat it too. And we have a kind of apathy settling for this far and, and not finishing it out. Uh, sources of strength. Uh, temptations that come along with the battles, whatever spiritual battles that you're fighting. Temptation to just say, you know what? I am done with this completely. I've been there a time or two. Especially when God lays something on your heart to say, listen, what, you know, digging wells in Africa, helping a food pantry up the road, I mean, whatever it is, and saying, listen, I'm asking you to give toward it sacrificially. I'm asking you to, to really get outside of yourself, whatever. And, and maybe this happens financially. Maybe it happens relationally where, where there's somebody that you know that needs to hear the Jesus story and it's going to cost, in a sense, political or personal uh, capital to spend. I'm telling you this. You don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know what they're going to think. It's going to cost something. And the temptation is to say, I'm done with it. I don't need that. Or, or to do it, as Aiken does, in such a way that you do it, but you don't do it. I mean, I'll give what seems like a lot, but, but right up until the point that it's going to actually take something from me. And I'm going to hide that under, under the tent with the silver underneath. Or, and I love this last one, but not driving it out completely. Because there's a sense in which we can easily come to this conclusion. Grace does this as a byproduct sometimes, where, where we feel like we simply arrived. Jesus died. I've prayed the prayer. I'm saved. I believe that. I'm good, right? I mean, I can just put it on autopilot and just kind of cruise through the rest of life. That's how, it, that's how grace works, right? We don't have to finish the, the work started. I love, and we've hit it a few weeks ago now, I think, but, but it wasn't a very big point then, but I love the fact that when God changes Jacob's name to the name that sticks now, Israel, and says, my people, they're going to be called Israel. The word is this compound word that means struggle with God. And there's this struggle that goes on not only with you know, Jacob wrestling with the angelic figure by the riverside, but, but you get the sense because the name sticks, it's like you're, you're not going to be done struggling with this. If you have this like, sense of entitled, you know, I have arrived, you, you're far from arriving. 
The struggle is, is, is part of the journey. As long as we're struggling and fighting and striving on for better, that's a place that God can work with. That's a heart that God is molding constantly. So places where we derive strength, who are the battles? And the last one is just a note on the, the land itself because it seems weird that God mentions it so many times, that God doesn't let it go. He promises it, he clears it, he settles it. And now in, in early on in verse 23, we said the land had rest from war. Rest, maybe it's because the Israelite people, the Hebrew language didn't have that many words, not nearly like we do in English. We're talking 10,000s versus hundreds of thousands. And so a lot of the words did double duty. But when a word is said, like, and this is a good one, uh, peace, shalom, you kind of have this, and we've done this before, kind of shalom having this like absence of war aspect. But at the same time, there's like this implied proactiveness to it too that says, but this is also a place where, where life can flourish, where people take care of each other. Peace and rest are similar in that regard. That, that rest doesn't mean like, oh, and finally we can be done with war. And so we're not doing anything. All the times that rest is used throughout the Bible, it's used for a purpose. So, so when God commands you to rest on the seventh day because he made it holy, we, don't, we have the sense that he's not just talking about not doing anything. We're talking about honoring the day. We're talking about respecting the day. We don't do something at the same time we do something as well. When the author here of, of Joshua says that the land had rest, we see from war. But the land didn't just quit. It did something. It wasn't just an end to itself. It couldn't be the end. If it were the end, the story would have ended when the people violated those same rules that the Canaanites violated. And God said, remember, you're not different. You're not that special. And he took the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and he cleared the people out, burned the cities, exiled the people. The land couldn't be the end because it didn't stay the end. No, the land and the rest in it was always toward a purpose. And that purpose was not simply lack of war. There's almost nothing remarkable about this land. Things grew there. Things grew a lot better near Egypt. Things grew there, but things grew a lot better near Mesopotamia where all these other civilizations settled. There were some significant people according to to our book, according to the Bible. But as far as like world history goes, Israel was never a very large nation and never, never very influential on the world stage, not like Egypt, not like Mesopotamia. In fact, the only d- distinctive characteristic of this patch of, I was going to say dirt, but it's more like sand, is that it seemed to be at the geographic center of civilization. Is that there's big powers all over the place. And God could have promised Egypt, but chances are if God promised Egypt and the people moved there, the message, it stayed in Egypt. And the same with Mesopotamia and China in South America, wherever all these ancient civilizations are, the people stayed there. The only distinctive characteristic about this patch of sand that God gave over to Abraham's descendants is that to get just about anywhere, you had to go through it. 
And if you're going to share, if you're going to tell a story here, you could share it with everybody. Because everybody came through. It's easy for us to think about how our sins have been atoned for. Jesus has paid the price. We find victory in him and rest, spiritual rest is ours. Except for our own rest is never the point. The point is how are we trying to get the message out? How are we trying to share the Jesus story? How are we trying to to tie in other people's story and connect it with his story? I just want to end on on, on sharing this um, true story that I heard earlier on in the week. And uh, as a business guy, we'll say not Grand Rapids, not West Michigan, but still in Michigan. And he didn't want me to use names because and he'd probably be too embarrassed or something like that if he kind of heard it. But uh, he's a Christian businessman, and he was giving a different Christian businessman some uh, kind of advice, kind of suggestions along the way, and, and said, listen, if you're going to try to like, run a Christian business, you should, and you're, he was just starting out, and he goes, you should, get, you should be prepared to, to really lose a phenomenal amount of money. <laughs> it's like, this is very encouraging. Uh, and he goes, because when God puts something on your heart, See, unlike everybody else, like we have to be obedient to that. We have to listen to what he's doing. And sometimes that is not going to make sense. Get it? Sense? Dollars and cents. Story goes, like this one time he said, uh, I was ordering, uh, manufacturing a, a, a valve, pressure valve things for some parts um, and I was working a lot with this uh, factory owner in, in Vietnam. And we're kind of going back and forth. And as it happens, we shared uh, like at least a dozen, up to maybe 15 or so, different drafts of the same product. And finally, I ordered them. We're not talking hundreds, maybe more like thousands of them. And the shipment came in, and we opened it up, and we started fitting it on what it was supposed to be fit onto, and it didn't fit. And we tried to figure out what went wrong, and it didn't take us to, uh, very long to realize they, they built the, the product on maybe number eight of the draft instead of the final one, which is number 15. They built it wrong. And she so goes, listen, it puts me in a bind because I've got customers. I've got to ship too, so I've got to do things a different way. It's got to be a rush job. It, it costs me an arm and a leg. But besides that, you don't pay for products when they're built wrong. You don't pay for anything when they're built wrong. That's their fault. And they're in a place where you just take them for all it's worth because you just leverage that. That's how the business works. But God did this weird thing. He put it on my heart and I couldn't get away from it to not only pay the local uh, manufacturers here to sell these things, but, but also to pay the guys who built it wrong. And not only just pay for the parts, but pay for the shipping to get the wrong parts here in the first place. Listen, this made no sense whatsoever. But that's what God was asking me to do. And so I, almost embarrassingly, paid for it. I caught up with that factory owner a little while later, years later. 
not only did that open a door in his heart, which eventually led him to accept Christ halfway around the globe, but it also broke open something in him that, that, that created this burning passion in him to help out the least among him. In, in Vietnam, there's these mixed-race kids that, that nobody will claim orphans for all intents and purposes. And he opens an orphanage to care for these kids because of the newfound faith that he has, because of what a Michigan business owner showed him years previous. I just, I want us to see that that if God is telling you a story or putting something on your heart and you tell it here, if you tell it to friends, if you tell it to business partners, if you tell it to relatives here, what God could do with it? who he could affect, who he could reach, who he could win over. But you just stand up. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are telling a good story among us. God, you are bringing us and putting something on our hearts to bring us to a place where we point other people towards you because your message of grace, God, it's, it's going forward. This story that you've started telling so many years ago is still being told here today. Uh, God, give us uh, just this sense this week that you're near us, that you're empowering us for the battles of head that we may, we may feel like we're losing for the, the times when we look to other people, outside factors other than you for strength. God, you're conquering all of that on our behalf. And indeed, in Jesus Christ, already have. But it's not so that we can just sit and do nothing, but it's so that we can go and tell the world. Go up before us this week, Holy Spirit. Amen.